right at death. Hello. Thank you, darling. 1842, Edgar Allan Poe. So, the Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There are sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the were the pest band which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow man. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents in half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. Sagacious? Sagacious? When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of the court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste, a strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and wielded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or to the frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was a folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all of the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisions, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within without was the red death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, the Prince Prospero entertained the thousand friends of masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene. That masquerade, but first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven. An imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites from a long and straight vista, while folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There's a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn, a novel effect to the right and left. In the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a close corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance to the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the easternly extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished with lighted and orange.
The fifth was white, the sixth was violet, and the seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and went down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments were there any lamp or candle broom amid the profusion of golden garments or ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended upon from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from the lamp or candle within the suite or chambers, but in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that protected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room, and thus produced a rulitude, a rulitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the fire light that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. Excuse me, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen hung lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical but of so peculiar a note of emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were concentrated to pause momentarily on their performances to hearken the sound. And thus the Walters perforce and seize their evolutions and their brief disconcert of the whole company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale and the more aged and sedated passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly and the musicians looked at each other and smiled as if their own nervousness and folly had made whispering vows each to the other. And the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. I'm just going to move this. But in spite of these things, it was a great and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barb- barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to bear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and yet it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen as Hernani, and there were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments 
there were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions and there was much of the beautiful much of the wanton and much of this bizarre and something of the terrible and not a little of that which might have excited disgust to and fro the seven chambers were stopped in fact a multitude of dreams and these the dreams wreathed to and about taking the hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as though the echo of the steps and anon there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet and then for a moment all is still and all is silent save the voice of the clock the dreams are stiff frozen as they stand but the echoes of the chime die away and they have endured but an instant and a light half subdued laughter floats after them as they depart and now again and the music swells and the dreams live and wreathe to and fro so merrily than ever taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods but to the chamber which lies most westerly of the seven there are now none of the maskers who venture for the night is waning away and there follows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls and to him whose foot falls upon the stable carpet there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peer more solemnly empathetic than which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments but these other apartments were densely crowded and in them beat feverishly the heart of life and the revel went whirling on until at length the commenced the sounding of the midnight upon the clock and then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there were an uneasy cessation of all things before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention to none single individual before. And the rumor of this now presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there rose at length from the whole company a buzz or a murmur expressive of deep disappropriation and surprise and then finally of terror of horror and of disgust in an assembly of phantasms such as i have painted it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such a sensation in truth the masquerade license that the night was nearly unlimited but the figure in question had out heroded herod and had gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum there are chords in the hearts of the most reckless that cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests. But there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seems somehow deeply to feel that in a costume of bearing the figure of neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from the head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the chest. And yet all this might have endured if not approved by the mad revelers around, but the murmurer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture and disabled blood and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror.
when the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement as it more fully to sustain its role, hi, sweetie, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed in the first moments of a strong shudder, either in terror or distaste, but the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely in the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side, and at first he spoke there was a slight rushing movement of the group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe in which the mad assumptions of the murmur had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that unimpeded he passed with a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the cantries of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement that had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and with the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a loft of deadly terror had seized upon them all. He bore down a duran dagger and had approached and rapid impetuously to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter, having attained an extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry. And the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly upwards and afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the murmurer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped an unuttered horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent rudeness and untented by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of the revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired in the darkness and decay of the Red Death, how limitable dominion over all.